This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net. The kind of layperson's view, if I can put it that way, is that, of course, the perpetrators are pathological, that there's something wrong with them, even that, there's, that they were sort of born bad, that they were born wrong. And of course, I'm not the first person to say that that's not necessarily true. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi, we've got a different setup today. Um, we've got coronavirus in the country and Stephanie has a runny nose. So um, she's over on Skype. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. Tell us what, what, what we're going to do, though, even though you're on Skype, you know all about it. Yes, well, I was, I'm quite sorry to miss being, uh, being here in person uh, because we're going to talk to Shell Anderson today about one of my favourite subjects in ICL, which is genocide. Hi, yeah, Shell's here with me, keeping a safe distance. Hi, Shell. Hi. You've written about uh, genocide. Uh, let's just get the right title for your book, Perpetrating Genocide, a Criminological Account. But you're currently Assistant Professor of Law, University of Manitoba, Affiliated Research Fellow at the Centre for International Criminal Justice. And, I mean, I've known you a long time, being bouncing around here in the Netherlands. You were at, at NEOD, yes, weren't you? The yes. um, space that looks into what happened during the war? Yes, yes, I was at NEOD. I was at the Higgins Institute for Global Justice going farther back. Oh, yes, yeah. you'll remember that. <laughs> so, Stephanie. So what brought you to the Netherlands this week, Kiel? Shell, I should say. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I'm here for the trial of Dominic Ongwen for the closing arguments in the trial because I'm writing a book on the trial. Well, on Dominic Ongwen, I should say. So, Dominic Ongwen himself. What's so interesting about Ongwen? Well, as you said, I've been working a lot on perpetrators and I wrote a book on perpetrators and I've interviewed many perpetrators. And it, one of the things that arose from those interviews was that a lot of perpetrators stories in a sense are quite complicated or, or or i should say that they reflect all the complexity that people have they're in many ways ordinary people uh, not fully ordinary in in a sense but in many senses also ordinary and dominic on one is, is sort of a paradigmatic case of somebody who was both a victim and a perpetrator or perhaps a victim who became a perpetrator uh, depending of course on where you sit within the case and where do you sit within the case? Or are you trying to take that kind of helicopter view of looking at all sides? I'm looking at all sides. I mean, I am writing partly from a personal perspective as well. And I, I went and did research in Uganda a couple of years ago, and I interviewed about 70 people who know Dominic Ongwen or who knew Dominic Ongwen. So I interviewed, uh, I interviewed somebody who was there the day he was abducted. I interviewed his family members who are still surviving from the period before he was abducted. I interviewed people who served above him in the Lord's Resistance Army, so some senior commanders, as well as people who were his subordinates within Sinia Brigade and other units that he served in. Uh, I interviewed some of his victims. So I came out of all these interviews with a, a very, I guess, a very conflicted perspective on things. And I think that's actually the correct perspective. Not, not that I want to tell other people what to think, but I, I think there's no way to boil his story down into a simple narrative of a victim became perpetrator, 
or good became evil. It's really just a very complex story, I think. And and like many people, I think Ong Wen, you know, is a multifaceted person with many aspects to his personality and his lived experiences. And so that's one of the things that really interests me is how that's also how that's represented in the context of, of criminal law and in the context of a criminal trial. Is that one of the things that that strikes you about how perpetrators get framed, the way that we see them as either good or, or generally see them as bad? Is, is that yeah. what you're exploring? Yeah, I mean, I think the kind of layperson's view, if I can put it that way, is that, of course, the perpetrators are pathological, that there's something wrong with them even that there's that they were sort of born bad that they were born wrong and of course i'm not the first person to say that that's not necessarily true you know for the majority of perpetrators and mass atrocities which you know as the name indicates involve a massive number of perpetrators a massive number of victims so just by definition uh, they couldn't all be pathological they couldn't all be extraordinary because the population makeup is not such uh, so i think yeah, Ong Wen's story is, is perhaps even a more extreme variation of that because nobody, even the prosecution in the case, nobody is arguing that he wasn't a victim at some point. Uh, so then the question is, you know, how does that carry over into his perpetratorhood uh, and how does that affect criminal defenses? And I mean, through the trial, we're definitely getting very different views, unsurprisingly, on that perspective. So, I mean, I think... For the prosecution, it's fairly linear, and in many ways, criminal law is fairly linear and fairly binary. That, you know, they don't have jurisdiction for anything that happened before 18, age 18, so he wasn't charged with any crimes before age 18. In fact, they, they picked a period about 10 years later. Um, so for them, he becomes culpable at age 18, and unless, you know, in terms of criminal defenses, unless he could prove for every specific offense in a really concrete way that he was directly threatened, then those offenses are not applicable, or sorry, those defenses are not applicable. So it's, it's, it's not really about socialization for them. It's not really about his life experience per se. Of course, the defense is, is emphasizing the exact opposite of that. Uh, and the victim's counsel is, is similar to the prosecution in their view as well, in terms of, uh, on Wen's culpability, but all three sides recognize that he was victimized. Nobody disputes his victimhood there, but the defense argument is how could he not be kind of messed up from what he went through, and obviously, uh, like his judgment was marred by this upbringing. But the prosecutor argument is that so many other child soldiers went through the same thing and did not become some very high up uh, LRA commander. Now, you did a lot of research in interviewing perpetrators. Is there something in him that makes him then more uh, a perpetrator? Or is that just the fantasy we like to have that there is something special about him as well that he would turn into a perpetrator and not anything else? That's a tricky question to answer. I mean, and truthfully, I'm not sure. But, you know, I did interview people who knew him as a child, as a, I mean, both within the LRA, but more importantly, before the LRA. And everybody I interviewed found him to be a very ordinary child. So I don't think there was any kind of psychological abnormality in the sense of something he was born with. Of course, I don't know. But um, 
maybe there could be personality things, perhaps. I mean, and of course, people adjust to their circumstances and they adapt. And and Ang Wen was definitely a good adapter. And he was, you know, everybody I spoke with that knew him in the LRA, or almost everybody, uh, said that he was a good fighter. That was that was kind of his identity. He was known to be to be pretty straight laced, a good fighter, quite courageous, you know, from the perspective of the LRA. So a very reliable commander. I think generally pretty well liked by the people who served with him in combat in, in those kinds of situations. But one of the things that's interesting there as well is when somebody says somebody's a good fighter in the context of the LRA, it also means a different thing than, than in the context of the the Dutch army and words like mass atrocity are different. So I mean, it could mean that he was very good at, you know, terrorizing people. It could. And you know, uh, one of the questions I started off asking people was, you know, did they ever see Ang Wen commit an atrocity? Or did they see, you know, I might be more specific, did you see him torture somebody? Uh, but these words are, of course, very loaded words. And, and I was basically getting a universal no. Uh, but then when I dug a bit deeper, I realized um, things like civilian, for example. I mean, they wouldn't consider a civilian somebody who was living in a village where one person in the village had informed the UPDF, the Ugandan army, about the movements of the LRA. If the LRA, LRA then went to the village and killed everybody, they wouldn't consider that a massacre of civilians. They would say, no, but somebody informed the UPDF about our movement. So they weren't civilians. But of course, that's a very different perspective to us and, and certainly to law. You've interviewed a lot of different perpetrators or and, and looked at the space around perpetrators. How do you go about doing that? Well, it's different in every place and in every context, uh, because the contexts are so different. And a lot of it depends, needless to say, on what's happened since the atrocity. You know, and if it's a situation where the atrocity is condemned by whatever regime is in power, then usually often people then are in prison, not always, but often they're in prison. And then it's a matter of getting permission from official authorities. And I find in general, a lot of these people in prison are quite bored. And they're, they're usually, I've, I've had very few people who don't actually want to speak with me. Uh, if they're not in prison, if they haven't been convicted of a crime, then of course, it's a completely different scenario. And um, then you have to be maybe a bit more entrepreneurial, but in certain contexts that can also be risky as well. Um, Does yeah. it generally take a lot of effort? I mean, to establish trust from people, or yes. the, or they just accept that you're a researcher and they're quite happy to chat to you generally. Well, trust is a complicated thing. I mean, in the sense that um, there can be enough trust to speak with me, which is mostly the case, though not always the case. Uh, but they might speak with me and not tell me everything, of course. So there's a that's another level of trust, perhaps, and there are other considerations there as well. So, um, but I think there may be some advantages to being an outsider as well in, in that regard. That uh, that obviously I'm not seen usually as affiliated to any party in any conflict, and um, I'm not tied up in local. I guess in local cultural considerations either because I'm coming from outside, which which can be a pro and a con, I think, in doing research. So what I what I saw from the research is that, yeah, you interviewed over 200 uh, perpetrators from Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, Bosnia, Cambodia, Bangladesh, and Iraq. And 
from this, you know, one of the things you said is, you know, people want them to be extraordinary, but one of the common threads is that they're quite ordinary. Can you pick out other common threads that you see? Like what, what is it that makes somebody kind of become a perpetrator of mass atrocities? Is there something you could point to? Yeah, I, I wish I could in a way. I'm not sure that I could come up with a, a really concrete set of factors, although I Because I think, again, there's a lot of diversity and a lot of variation, just like there is for people more broadly. So I think, you know, you have people who, who join or who become involved in violence for economic reasons, you know, and even economic reasons can take a lot of different forms. It might be somebody who wants to advance their career, for example, who's already in government, if the government's committing atrocities. Um, it could be somebody who's more interested in looting, you know, if there's a context of mass violence, their neighbor has has a cow and they want that cow, maybe they'll kill their neighbor or maybe they'll wait until their neighbor's killed and then steal their things. I mean, these are all kind of different sort of facets of mass atrocities. Um, and beyond that, of course, some people join because they're coerced. Some people join just because it's the path of least resistance. Uh, maybe they're pressured in the more general sense in terms of conformity and kind of social pressures. Uh, there are people who also really actively seek out involvement in violence. Um, I would say that they're in the minority, definitely, but there are the kind of more pathological perpetrators, in my view. Some of them might have been involved in criminal behavior as well in the past, but that's not typical of most perpetrators, I would say. You said um, that some people in Uganda wouldn't necessarily see... Um an international law definition of who is a civilian the same way. Yeah. Does that also play a part? The prevailing conditions are more of an us versus them attitude that, that is also important? Yeah, you mean in terms of the government versus the local people in the north, north of well, Uganda? Well, I mean, anywhere that, yeah. that, that people just absorb what, what it is that, uh, you know, either you're with us or against us and therefore anything is justified? Yeah, I mean, again, it varies a lot by context. But in the case of Uganda, I think there's a lot of alienation still in the, in the north from the central government, and there's a lot of suspicion and, and some hostility, which isn't to say that all the people who are hostile towards the central government then love the LRA. I mean, I think the, the population started to turn against the LRA, I think, just because of the scale of the atrocities they were involved in. But I was thinking about in uh, Rwanda, what justified people joining in the genocide there, which I know is a huge, huge issue. But yeah. um, there was this sense of um, you know, ethnic solidarity, right. government, pro-government solidarity, yeah. etc. that, you know, you're, it, we're under attack in some well, way. Well, fear is a big factor in that kind of context, definitely. And In the Rwandan genocide, I think many Hutus were genuinely afraid uh, that the Tutsi were going to, to take their power, to take their land. And I'm not saying those were legitimate fears, uh, but the government propaganda was very much pushing that perspective and the, the propaganda from the extreme opposition parties. And I mean, they would literally distribute maps that would show how land was going to be redistributed, but those were false maps. That was actually propaganda. So for the average Rwandan, I mean, who do, you, who do you believe in this context? I mean, government propaganda has a certain degree of legitimacy because of where it's coming from. So I think definitely there were many people who feared. I mean, one of the questions I also asked people there uh, was, did you hear stories, for example, that, about the Tutsi vivisecting people, you know, dissecting people alive or boiling people in pots? 
And it's also one of the interesting facets of mass atrocities, the, the kind of projection that often takes place. And it's not uncommon that the perpetrator group is accusing the victim group of committing mass atrocities. It's quite common, uh, sometimes true, but, but usually false. Uh, and that was the case in Rwanda as well. So I think there was genuine fear, definitely, from some people. And, and that probably motivated some of the participation, definitely. You see the same thing very much in Bosnia, uh, where uh, victims uh, or perpetrators also accuse victims of, of wanting to perpetrate genocide and all that. And I was thinking about you when I was reading up on interviewing perpetrators and international law, uh, because Balkan's Twitter was up again in arms against Jessica Stearns for her book about Bosnian Serb leader Radovan Karadzic called My War Criminal. So I might be biased about this and influenced by the outrage of many of my Bosnian Twitter friends about the book and the New York Times spread. But what do you think? Like, what is the scientific value in that kind of interview? Well, do you want to describe the interview a little bit? Because uh, otherwise, those who haven't come across it uh, won't, won't, won't really know. As far as all I know about it was it that, uh, yeah, it caused a lot of outrage. But well, what was so wrong with it? Anybody? Um, it had a kind of very uh, romanticized image of him, I think. Also, the picture was very glamorized of Rado, and it was kind of like he is so uh, kind of sophisticated and seductive. Um, he really thought he was doing the right thing, I think, was a kind of some of the tone. Uh, but uh, Shell can maybe answer that a bit more because I saw you also reacted a bit on it on Twitter. Yeah, I ended up, one of my tweets ended up in a Croatian newspaper, <laughs> which is not something <laughs> I expected. So that was strange. But um, I actually haven't read the book. I mean, I, I did read the article in the New York Times, but I haven't read the book itself. But I, I think it was like something that would have been written, you know, 100 years ago, just to be frank. It, based on what I read in the article that it was very kind of, it was actually very orientalist and very kind of romanticizing, but in the sense of dark glamour, you know, romanticizing evil. And and the whole tenor of the thing was kind of, I I had the courage to go face to face with evil. And I, I think she says something like that he could have strangled her. There's some intimation that her life was in jeopardy in interviewing this person, and that's just, you know, he's he's a politician, you know. Let's let's be let's be straight with it, you know. And I and I've, a poet as well. And a poet, yeah. He's he might have well, he did do some bad things, but not in that sense. I mean, he's uh, so it just didn't make sense, and it it's, I mean, it's something I've seen a lot, and it's more about the it's more about building your own identity and your own prestige rather than about the interview subject, actually, you know, and sort of building yourself up as a uh, as somebody with the courage and with the maybe the perception to, to go face to face with extreme evil. But it's it's a little bit silly, ultimately. And I think that was the reaction of of both people who work on Bosnia and people who work on perpetrators. We didn't really see ourselves in that kind of piece, not that it was us who'd written it. But uh, yeah, it was sensationalist. Did you ever interview Karadzic or uh, how high up did you No, in I've interviewed interview? Yeah, I mean my interviews are almost always anonymous, so I can't tell you exactly mm -hmm. who I've interviewed, but I I have not interviewed Karadzic. I, I guess I could tell you who I've not interviewed, but uh, <laughs> <I> <laughs> then think. we'll be able to work it out. Yeah, but I have interviewed senior leaders in various countries, uh, like people who are cabinet ministers and 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 such, I, I suppose, and local leaders and uh, and there is a difference as well. And, and as I interviewed many of the senior LRAs, I told you as well. And 
there's often a difference in interviewing those people because, you know, again, making generalizations here, but often they're, they're more strategic and more deliberate about how they do things than the average person you might speak to. Because, I mean, you could imagine they're politicians. Maybe they're used to speaking to journalists or academics or whoever. So they tend to think a lot about what's in it for me and how am I going to present myself in this interview, which I think is m more marked than it is in an ordinary person. Yeah, especially politicians, I think, tend to have that. And whoever I've spoken to that are, you know, I've spoken mostly to people who are maybe like violence adjacent and not actually doing anything. The po but politicians are politicians everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like they are, they have a certain, even politicians that I don't like and I have to interview are generally really, really charming when you interview them because mm. that's their job. Yeah. Genocide has been um, a big subject again back in The Hague um, over the last few months because we had here at the International Court of Justice uh, a whole set of hearings around the Rohingya Muslims and whether potentially that calls into action under the Genocide Convention. You're mm. part of the whole scholarly community around genocide. What do you make of the arguments around genocide in, in that case as, as a genocide scholar? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. One of the most interesting features, of course, is the fact that uh, it's a it's a third party, in a sense, that, that was taking the case forward, being Gambia, which which, of course, is also allowed under the law of state responsibility in terms of, of the ICJ. Um, but also allowed because under the Genocide Convention, it's everybody's responsibility, or am I just massively yeah, that's, over that, No, no, that's that. true. And, and beyond that, genocide is part of customary international law. I don't think anybody really disputes that. or not. It's not a mainstream view, at least I could say. I mean, you never know, but to dispute the fact that genocide is part of customary international law. So, yeah, so I, I think that aspect was interesting. In terms of the case itself... Um, I think there's a good there's a good factual basis to to believe that genocide could have occurred definitely, uh, and I think that's enough to satisfy at least uh, the ordering of interim measures, which is what happened in the case, of course. Uh, I've, it, a lot of it comes back to this usual continuous debate, you know, in in terms of the law of genocide as to whether things are ethnic cleansing or genocide, what is the intention of the perpetrators, and of course that's usually inferred from the pattern of acts. Usually the perpetrators haven't made statements. Sometimes they've made statements. And that's handy, I guess, if you're coming from the prosecution side, so to speak, if there's the statement saying we wanted to destroy them. But that that's often not there. I think there was some stuff a bit like that in the case of Myanmar. When uh, Aung San Suu Kyi was in The Hague, she wouldn't even use the word Rohingya, uh, in yeah. a sense, to designate that ethnic group, which is which is quite a thing. Yeah, and I've been there as well, not not to do research, but I, I was there, I don't know what it was now, probably eight years ago, and I went to the National Cultural Museum, I don't remember the exact name of it, but the National Museum, which is in, in the capital, and they have an exhibit of all the different ethnic minorities <laughs> in Myanmar, and maybe I'm not surprising you, but not only do they not say Bengali, which of course is the term the regime uses quite deliberately for Rohingya, but in fact, they don't mention them at all. It's as if they don't exist, and they've been there for a long time. And I think that's very telling. I mean, the, the use of the term Bengali itself is, is problematic and says something about the regime, because, of course, the, the intimation is that they're coming from somewhere else. And, and, you know, that's a narrative we see time and time again in genocide. And if you're coming from somewhere else, if you don't belong, then maybe it's justified to 
to destroy your presence there in the country. So, but you're saying that um, otherwise, what you do is you 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 infer intent from the acts. In from most the cases, acts. in most cases, and I mean, I think in the case of the the, the Rohingya, I don't have all the the facts. But I think in terms of those Facebook posts and that stuff, one of the issues was how much of that could be attributed to the government. Of course, the government also has an obligation of due diligence. Even if it was private actors committing genocide, uh, the government has an obligation to stop that. And of course, as you know well, regimes often use you know, private or semi-private paramilitary forces to commit these kinds of atrocities. And one of the reasons they do so is for plausible deniability. And we also saw, um, kind of in the courtroom, the uh, the sen- uh, quite a lot of questions I saw around whether uh, Professor William Shabas should have been arguing on behalf of the uh, the Myanmar side, and that caused quite a lot of controversy within your community amongst genocide scholars, or not really. It depends who you ask, but uh, he was my thesis supervisor for my PhD, so maybe I've, I've got a conflict of interest. I don't know if that's, that's the case, but he was my supervisor. But I think the lawyers tended to say it's fine. You know, this is what lawyers do, and it's, it, it's a kind of client of sorts. Um, not every lawyer made that argument, but almost all of them did, so it's very ordinary, and it shouldn't even really be questioned. It's part of the system. Uh, the social science and, his, and more historical people Almost all of them said, no, it's not fine. Uh, and of course, he used to be the president of the International Association of Genocide Scholars, which is the main scholarly association of people studying genocide. And um, most people in that organization and most people who study genocide have at least a, a bit of an activist bent in the sense, even on the most minimal level that they think genocide is bad, we should stop genocide. <laughs> just can't not stop myself from so, giggling which i know is terrible but yeah, yeah i mean don't we all agree all over the world that genocide's bad yeah that's kind Does of that it so activist so i guess in that from that perspective it's like why would you want to represent a regime that at best in my view at best is committing crimes against humanity but at the same time this is also what lawyers do and it, it is a personal decision and to say nobody asked me, but to say that I wouldn't do it uh, doesn't necessarily mean that he shouldn't do it. But there definitely was some some controversy and some frustration, especially from the more social science history side of things, definitely. Any expectations? What will come out in the end? It's hard to say. Uh, I mean, the, we had the interim measures decision. Of course, that doesn't necessarily relate to the final decision. I mean, they're two different processes in a sense. But... I think there could be a finding of genocide, but it, it, it is a complicated case. It is definitely a complicated case. And I think that's also part of the problem with genocide and the way that people conceptualize genocide legally, but also, I guess, on a broader sense, that many genocides do not look like the Holocaust. Genocide can unfold in, through many different kind of methodologies, to be sure. So, so in some ways, what happened in Myanmar is not that unusual, but it was definitely not the Holocaust. And this goes back to something that I've been wondering about. Do you, we talked about there not being this very clear path. And in your book, I saw that you talk about decision-making in genocide. Mm. And the only one I know quite in-depth about the decision-making process is Srebrenica. And it always stuck me as extremely opportunistic and a bit haphazard decision-making. Is that... 
also what you see in kind of other uh, genocide research because uh, yeah, the Holocaust was very mapped out, but everything else so far seems to be kind of we're here. Apparently, we could do this. Let's let's do this. Yeah, I mean, I think I think in every genocide, there's this mix of organization of spontane- and spontaneity. Uh, even in the Holocaust, I think the Holocaust, I wouldn't say the Holocaust was disorganized, needless to say, I wouldn't also say the Rwandan genocide was disorganized, but there was an element of, of um, improvisation, even in the Holocaust. If you look at the way violence unfolded differently in different places that were under German control, a lot of that related to local leadership and the ways that they chose to interpret, you know, to, chose to interpret the orders of Hitler or even more broadly um, what they thought Hitler wanted, which goes beyond just orders, of course, but then also their own personalities, perhaps their own way of doing things. So, so I think it's never perfectly organized. And this is an issue I had a little bit with some of the narratives out of the ICTR, out of the Rwanda tribunal as well, is that there seemed to be a dichotomous argument. On the one hand, prosecution, everything was organized years in advance. Everything was set out to the nth degree, Rwanda is a very conformist, very centralized society, and there's some truth to all those things. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, the defense, nobody was in charge. That's sometimes the impression I had. Everything was spontaneous. And I think the reality was was definitely a bit of both of those things. I mean, I wasn't doing criminal investigations, but the the people I did speak to in Rwanda, including leaders, uh, told me that they had meetings, you know, that were, I think, at least a year in advance or so. So there was definitely some level of planning. Uh, but once that plane was shot down, um, to some degree, all bets were off. I mean, there was a lot of organization that had been put in place already, but things evolved and changed through the course of the genocide. And I think that's typical in almost every case. I mean, they all unfold a bit differently, but... The idea of a perfectly masterminded, centrally organized genocide um, doesn't exist. It's more of a paradigm, I think. It's more of a kind of ideal, if I could put it that way. So if that kind of creeps into the way we interpret criminal law, that can also become problematic. And of course, this can relate to to modes of liability, like conspiracy and, and other things as well. But uh, yeah, usually there's a mix of design and improvisation. And we always ask um, three final questions for our for our guests. Over to you, Stephanie. And uh, this is our a mix of design and improvisation. Um, the our first question is always, what does everybody get wrong about your job or what you do? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, questions. I, one of the questions I get a lot is, "Are you scared?" I mean, this kind of relates to what we were talking about earlier. Are you scared interviewing these people? And sometimes I tell a story about interviewing somebody who was an executioner in Cambodia um, who killed many people, potentially as many as a couple thousand people, personally, I mean, executed. And he was bouncing a baby on his lap, you know, for the whole interview. And and they asked me, was I scared in that situation? Well, not really. I mean, obviously, it's awful what he's speaking about. And it's, it is scary. But the people themselves usually aren't that scary, you know, nine times out of ten. So... So I think that's a, a bit of a misconception that I'm running around, maybe like this New York Times article, that I'm running around facing, you know, darkest evil. And yeah, that's most of my job is actually pretty mundane. And I find my interviews quite interesting, but 
there's even a, you know, we talk about the banality of evil, but there's also the banality of research, I think. And <laughs> even interviewing perpetrators and victims can be quite banal, of course, with, with also some very interesting and powerful stuff mixed in, but it still becomes a routine like anything else. So is there anything we should have asked you but we, uh, that we didn't? Hmm, that's a difficult question. Um, what else would you have liked to have spoken about? What else would I like to speak about? Sorry, I'm not answering your question. Um, I don't know, actually. What would you recommend to our listeners to read, watch, or listen to other podcasts, books, movies? How, could be in your field, doesn't have to be, but of course we're all international law geeks here, so. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I don't know the podcast landscape as well. There was the New York Times podcast. You probably know the one I'm speaking of on, on the Islamic State. By Rukimi Kal- Kalamichi. Uh-huh. Yeah, yes, yeah. excellent I'm one. Yeah, we'll put a name, link to that. That, that was very good. What's it called, Sir Stephanie? It's, it's called Caliphate. The Caliphate, yes. Yeah, and uh, so as somebody who researches perpetrators, some of the most interesting parts were where she's interviewing actually a Canadian uh, perpetrator, from what I recall, uh, who was in the Islamic State talking about the ex- actually the experience of killing somebody and and what he felt in that context and and that's something i've encountered as well in my research that some people it's relatively this is my interpretation but some people it's relatively easy for them to harm other people but for a lot of people it's difficult which i think is is maybe the good news <laughs> but in terms of uh other things uh some of the documentaries I really like on perpetrators are the Joshua Oppenheimer ones. Um, out, the of act Indonesia. Of killing, out of Indonesia, the 1965 massacre of around a million, well, genocide, I think I could say, of around a million communists. Yeah, where people were accused of being communists. Called The Act of Killing. The Acts of Killing and, and it, also you, The Look of Silence, which is the second one. I haven't seen that one yet. But do you call The Act of Killing a documentary? Because it, it's, it's... It's an unusual beast. It, it definitely really is. And I, I've heard you know, praise and critique both. But for me, it, it, I found it fascinating, even having done, you know, tons of interviews and met many different sorts of people, I, I still found it, I guess it sort of rang true for me as well. Not that I saw those same things. I mean, the, the fact that he had this kind of dramatization going on, obviously brought something very different out of his interview subjects, if I could call them that, uh, than in, in the more dry context in which I'm doing interviews. I'm not asking people to, to perform reenactments or anything like that. So, yeah, and there are lots of good books on, on genocide, certainly, especially, I think, in the Rwandan genocide, there's a lot of interesting work being done. I mean, when I, when I started working on it, which was maybe about 15 or so years ago, uh, in my view, there weren't that many good books on Rwanda and the Rwandan genocide. That has changed. I mean, it really exploded... Uh, maybe now there's almost too much research on Rwanda, I'm not sure. But th- these things sort of seem to move in waves. But people have done really interesting stuff on kind of the microdynamics of genocide, which goes, you know, w- in some senses way beyond what I've done in detail as well, looking at how violence is mobilized at the very micro level. People like Omar McDoom, Leanne Fuji is, is not so new, and, and sadly she passed away, but I, I was a great admirer of her work as well. Okay, we'll put links up uh, to those as well. Well, thank you very much for coming to talk to us, me via Skype, but uh, Janet in person. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been interesting. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. 
It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word. Thank you.